0: Welcome to the St. Matt's 6 p.m. podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. It's the most wonderful time of the year. All right, 9.30 no, were way better, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, 7.45 didn't sing at all. I just like, oh, yeah. That's okay. Alright, that's Andy Williams, 1963. I definitely had to look it up, but we all know the song, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. That's how we talk about December. That's how we talk about the holidays. That's how we talk about the Christmas season. The most wonderful time of the year. So much hype. And for some people, December really is the most wonderful time of the year. But not for everyone. I, I read a survey this week. Uh, that said that two out of three people with mental health issues report the holiday people, but two out of making their condition worse. So another survey that again said two out of three people, but two out of three adults generally report feeling more lonely during the holidays. They don't come up with answers. Why? Maybe it's family pressure, social expectations. Maybe it's the passing of another year. Maybe it's something else. But there is something about this season that causes people to feel even more acutely their disappointment, their discouragement, their despair. You might say that hurt gets harder to hide in the holidays, even from ourselves. And I'm confident But there are plenty of people in this room that are hurting at this time of year. Every year in December we decorate with festive colors and with evergreen. But maybe this year your life doesn't feel so evergreen. Maybe your life right now feels more like desert. Maybe you feel lost in the wilderness. Maybe flourishing for you feels impossible right now. Maybe this December you just feel dry. Well, 27 centuries ago, give or take, the prophet Isaiah delivered a, design, a divine message for those in the desert. Your God will come. God, we thank you so much for the beauty and hope in this passage. And we would pray that you would take that hope and beauty and you would seal it in our hearts. Amen. Verse three. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Your God will come. That's a promise. But let's be clear, it's not a promise that God will come. This is a promise that your God will come. It's a promise for God's people. It's personal, it's relational. Your God who knows you and loves you and who is so invested in you that it would completely overwhelm you to behold it, your God will come. He will come in power, in strength. With vengeance and divine retribution, he will come to save you. When I was about 10 years old, I was at a playground and there was a local troublemaker from my school at this playground as well. And he hit me in the face with a piece of playground equipment and my eye immediately started to swell up uh, and I responded how probably a lot of 10-year-old boys would do. I chased after him and I shoved him over. And then out of nowhere, his mother appeared and started screaming at me and I pointed at my now closed eye and I said, he hit me first. And all these years later, I still remember what she said. She said, well, "Let me read it. I don't care what he did. You don't touch my boy." And the injustice of that still kind of bothers. But I've been working it out all day, <laughs> and in this sermon, I'm feeling a little better. But that's kind of how parents love, right? They're partisan. They're biased in favor of their kids. We we might want to be objective, but when push comes to shove. We have our kids' backs. And your God is biased for you. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. He has your back, and one day He will come. It's pretty much the message of the chapter. But then with so much beauty, the prophet Isaiah elaborates on the implications of the fact that God is going to come. Across the chapter, he lists a whole bunch of ways God's coming is going to turn things around. All these ways God is going to bring this massive reversal, this transformation. And I've been legit stressed all week about preaching this passage because I think it might be my favorite in all the Old Testament. And I think it's so poetically beautiful and the best way to ruin poetry is to overanalyze it but we're going to look at some stuff anyway verse one the desert and the parched land will be glad the wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus it will burst into bloom it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy the glory of lebanon will be given to it the splendor of carmel and Sharon. You guys all remember the Magic School Bus, right? Yeah, great, good, because I was like, Oh, it's just this... did Gen Z know what that is? Okay, great. All right. Don't worry, Magic School Bus taught me many years ago that the desert actually has a thriving ecology. I get that. But in the Bible, the desert represents lifelessness. Failure to flourish. It represents hardship and brokenness and barrenness and loneliness. But when God comes, even the desert is going to be transformed. The lifeless desert will burst into bloom like a crocus flower. The desert places will be given the glory and splendor of Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon. And as you hear that, you say, oh, Carmel and Sharon, you say, wow. Except this doesn't translate for Sydney Sydneysiders at all, does it? I get that. So, if you don't know a crocus, I have a, a photo on the screen for you. It's a purple flower, blooms quite, in a, quite a stunning way, Right? But I think for an Aussie, the same sentiment would be communicated if we'd substitute the word jacaranda in place of crocus. Very different plant, but around November, this explosion of purple beauty. That's what's going to happen in the desert. It's going to be blooming like that. Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon are places near or in Israel that were particularly known by God's people as being abundant and beautiful. So help me out. What are some particularly beautiful and glorious places in or near Sydney? Call them out. Beach. The beach. Which one? All of them. <laughs> I love your energy. Okay. The beach. <laughs> okay. We'll try that one. All right. The beach. What else? Echo point. Echo point. I've never heard of that. Where's that? Three Sisters. Love it. Great. All right. I've heard of the Blue Mountains. Okay. Where else? What's that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I get you, Jenny. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, well, definitely use Watson Bay if everyone else agrees. Yep, okay, great. Any others? Grant, the Royal National Park? Yeah, I remember driving along the highway like Engadin or the Kid or whatever the, the suburb is there and just looking to my right and it's just like an ocean of green. It's crazy, right? This is kind of what Isaiah is doing for the people of Israel. The splendor of the beach. Let's say Balmoral Beach the glory of Watson's Bay, the beauty of the Royal National Park, the wonder of the Blue Mountains. That's going to be given to even the desert places. At the end of verse 6, Isaiah writes that water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. The the desert places, the broken places, the empty places, the lonely, lifeless places are going to flourish and be wonderful, glorious, awesome. A change is coming. A reversal is coming. A transformation is coming because your God will come. And he's going to undo the brokenness of the world. And then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Your God will come. And when he comes, he's going to reverse the brokenness in the lives of his people. And maybe you're not a person with blindness or or deafness or lameness or muteness. But however you experience brokenness in the world, your God can reverse that. If you are one of his people, one day he will reverse that. Isaiah continues, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. And it will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. There's so many reversals here. For those who have been wandering around in the desert. For those with feeble hands and knees that are about to give way. It's going to be a straight road, a highway, the way of holiness. And for those who have fearful, anxious hearts, Isaiah tells us it's going to be a safe road. And that road is going to lead straight to Zion, the heavenly city. And did you see how people who walk on that road are described? Look at those three R's. They are the redeemed, the rescued, the returning. Look at the reversal God is doing in them. Redeemed from a debt they couldn't pay. Rescued from a fate they couldn't change. Brought home to a place that they couldn't find. And then one last reversal. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Literally, that verb, overtake, it's take hold of them. Kind of like the idea of hunting them down and capturing them. Which sounds ominous, except it's gladness and joy that are going to take hold of them. And sorrow and sighing are going to flee away. Your God will come. He will come to save you and bring you into his city, into his home, to live with him forever. But when? When will all this happen? We got a reference to Echo Point earlier. We we talked about the Blue Mountains. I want you to take a moment, turn to the person next to you, tell them where is your favorite place to view the Blue Mountains. I don't mean where is your favorite place with a view in the Blue Mountains, but like maybe back towards West Pennant Hills, where is your favorite place to get a view of the Blue Mountains? Discuss. All right, come back together. I would love to hear some responses of where is your favorite place to view the Blue Mountains. Tell me. No, that's in the mountains, though. I mean, it isn't. Wait, is that the hotel? Yeah, incredible view. I'm not arguing, but this way, a view of the mountains. What look at in Juro? Porter Scenic Lookout. I'm going to look this up. All right. This is helpful. Good. All right. All right. Yeah, that's where I was going to go as well. Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ever change, man. That's awesome. All right. All right. I'm not going to take any more responses. I feel like this might spiral. If we've made it to KFC, we're cutting it off. All right. Let's, Let's go back to Oak Hill College because that was mine as well. When you're driving on Old Northern Road and you go past Oak Hill College, there's this little clearing and it looks incredible. Or you go a bit further and then you're driving down Glen Glenhaven Road. Yes, right? You, some of you had that one as well. You're facing due west and you just see all the mountains. It's like one is being arranged next to the other all the way down. And it's incredible. Except that's not actually how the mountains have been arranged, right? Once you start driving into the mountains as opposed to looking to, at them from a distance, you realize that... They don't all sit alongside each other neatly. The mountain range is much deeper than it is tall. A mountain might look like it's sitting beside another one from a distance, but then when you get closer, you realize that it's actually behind it. And this is how biblical prophecies often work. We get these descriptions alongside one another of these different events. And when you read it in the prophecy, it sounds like they're all happening next to each other. But then when you get closer to the events, you realize there's some depth. And we aren't told when God is going to come at last. But there's a a difference between us and the people who first heard this prophecy. They had to trust that one day God would come. We, on the other hand, we know that he has already come. And now we're called to trust that he will come again. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish teenager named Mary gave birth to a son. And they named him Jesus, which means God saves. And they named him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Your God has come. He has come to save you. And Jesus grew up. And he opened the eyes of the blind and unstopped the ears of the deaf. And he healed the lame so that they could leap like the deer. And he healed the mute so that he could shout for joy. And on the night before he died, he told his followers that he is the way. He is the straight path, the highway of holiness. He's the way to Zion. He is the way home. He is the way and anyone who comes to him, who walks in him, he will keep safe. And then the next day, he died. Not by accident, he died by plan to redeem us from the debt of all our failures. And then he rose again to rescue us from death so that we could be clean, we could be spiritually clean, so that we could return to our Father. We haven't seen water gush forth in the wilderness yet. And you might right now feel a long, long way from flourishing. But those who trust that Jesus is the way feel the first sprinkles of rain that promise more will follow. Your God will come. If you haven't yet decided that Jesus is the way, if you haven't started to follow him yet, I want you to know what he's offering. He offers to be a straight and safe way to return to your God who loves you with a biased parent's love. He offers a way home. And if you are already walking on that way, I want you to join with me tonight in remembering our hope. Because our story doesn't end in the desert. It ends in Zion. Our story doesn't end in sorrow. It ends in crowns of everlasting joy. Our story doesn't end in death. It continues in life forever. Your God will come. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills six PM Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, a deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.